Welcome to First Do No Harm with Massachusetts Citizens for Life board member and physician, Dr. Mark Rollo. This broadcast will focus on medical ethics from a Catholic perspective and address abortion, physician-assisted suicide, contraception, natural family planning, IVF, healthcare proxy, and other topics. Please be advised that this show may not be appropriate for children under 13. Hello and welcome back to First Do No Harm, a show about medical ethics from a Catholic perspective. I'm Dr. Mark Rollo. The last four shows featured the folly of gender ideology. With the apple eaten in Eden, Adam and Eve sought to make themselves like God not satisfied that they were already made in the image and likeness of God. The apple eaten in Eden was a denial of the reality that God is God and we are not. Gender ideology is denial of the reality that we are made in the image and likeness of God, that we are made male and female. Some who have the crazy notion that we are limitless genders also believe that there are almost limitless ways to produce another human being. But human beings are not products. We are not produced. We are begotten. God's design is to have us begotten in love. Like the Trinity, Mother father, and child, are an exchange of love. When new life does not flow from love, it is very painful. This heartache leads many to partake of the fetid fruit of artificial reproductive technologies like IVF, in vitro fertilization. But the pain and anguish felt by infertile couples is very real and leads to desperate measures which are not well thought out. Today you will hear part one of my recent interview with author and international speaker Stephanie Gray Connors. About a year ago I interviewed Stephanie about her book, Start With What? Ten Principles for Thinking About Assisted Suicide. For the next few shows, I will be speaking with her about her most recent book, Conceived by Science, Thinking Carefully and Compassionately About Infertility and IVF. Before we continue, let us pray, for as stated by the U.S. Catholic bishops, only with prayer, prayer that storms the heavens for justice and mercy, prayer that cleanses our hearts and souls. Will the culture of death that surrounds us today be replaced with a culture of life? Scripture has many examples of miraculous interventions into the lives of those who are burdened with infertility. Sarah, who became mother of Isaac. Elizabeth, who became mother of John the Baptist. And Hannah, who became the mother of the prophet Samuel, are three such women. In the first book of Samuel, chapter 1, verses 10 through 17 and verse 20, Hannah's lament is recorded while she is overheard by the high priest, Eli. In her bitterness, she 
prayed to the Lord, weeping freely, and made this vow. O Lord of hosts, if you look with pity on the hardship of your servant, if you remember me and do not forget me, if you give your handmaid a male child, I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life. No razor shall ever touch his head. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli watched her mouth. For Hannah was praying silently, though her lips were moving. Her voice could not be heard. Eli, thinking she was drunk, said to her, How long will you make a drunken spectacle of yourself? Sober up from your wine. No, my lord, Hannah answered. I am an unhappy woman. I have had neither wine nor liquor. I was only pouring my heart out to the Lord. Do not think your servant a worthless woman. My prayer has been prompted by my deep sorrow and misery. Eli said, Go in peace, and may the God of Israel grant you what you have requested. She conceived, and at the end of her pregnancy, bore a son whom she named Samuel, because I asked the Lord for him. And in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, Hannah exults over the birth of Samuel, whose name means God heard. Hannah's prayer had profound influence on Mary's Magnificat. And Hannah prayed, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted by my God. I have swallowed up my enemies. I rejoice in your victory. There is no holy one like the Lord. There is no rock like our God. Speak boastfully no longer. Do not let arrogance issue from your mouths. For an all-knowing God is the Lord, a God who weighs actions. The bows of the mighty are broken, while the tottering gird on strength. The well-fed hire themselves out for bread, while the hungry no longer have to toil. The barren wife bears seven sons, while the mother of many languishes. The Lord puts to death and gives life. Cast down to shoal and brings up again. The Lord makes poor and makes rich, humbles and also exalts. He raises the needy from the dust, from the ash heap, lifts up the poor to seat them with nobles and make a glorious throne their heritage. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and he has set the world upon them. He guards the footsteps of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall perish in the darkness. For not by strength does one prevail. The Lord's foes shall be shattered. The Most High in heaven's thunders. The Lord judges the ends of the earth. May he give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. O God, Heal your daughters and their spouses who suffer from infertility. Heal their bodies, if it be your will. And heal their hearts and souls, which is always 
your will. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. And now here is part one of my interview with Stephanie Gray Connors as she delivers a message of love and hope. Joining me now is Stephanie Gray Connors. Stephanie is an author and international speaker who began presenting at the age of 18. She has given more than a thousand pro-life presentations over two decades across North America, as well as in Scotland, England, Ireland, Austria, Latvia, Guatemala, Mexico, and Costa Rica. She has spoken at many post-secondary institutions such as the University of California, Berkeley, Cornell University, and the University of Virginia Law School. In 2017, Stephanie was a presenter for a series of talks at Google, lecturing at Google headquarters in California. Stephanie's audiences are vast, including medical and law students, churches of various denominations, seminaries, high schools, and conferences. She has spoken at events for YWAM, which is Youth with a Mission, Alliance Defending Freedom, and the Colson Center for a Christian Worldview, to name a few. Stephanie has formally debated abortion advocates such as Princeton philosophy professor Peter Singer, as well as late-term abortionist Dr. Fraser Fellows. She has also debated Dr. Malcolm Potts, the first medical director for International Planned Parenthood Federation. In 2019, Stephanie participated in a historic eight-woman debate on abortion at La Ciudad de la Adias, abbreviated CDI, which is an event similar to TED Talks, and it was held in Puebla, Mexico. Stephanie is the author of Love Unleashes Life, Abortion and the Art of Communicating Truth, as well as the book, Start With What? Ten Principles for Thinking About Assisted Suicide. She holds a Bachelor's of Arts in Political Science from the University of British Columbia in Vancouver and a certification with distinction in healthcare ethics from the National Catholic Bioethics Center in Philadelphia. And to learn more about Stephanie's work, you can go to loveunleasheslife.com, which is her website, loveunleasheslife.com. So, thanks very much, Stephanie, for joining me today. Oh, you're welcome, Mark. I always appreciate talking about important topics with you. Well, I and uh, speaking of that, uh, the last time we spoke, uh, you did me the honor of talking about your last book, and that was almost exactly a year ago. And, That's uh, great. It seems to be January is my month of birthing books. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and August is your month for birthing babies, or at least one baby. And, that's, that's right. My sweet little Violet was born last August, so she's already seven and a half months, and she's just a delight. Yeah, so so how is a life with a little one running around? Well, it is it is definitely <laughs> exhausting, yep. um, but so much joy at the same time. But uh, I've, I've learned to embrace, actually quite happily, the simple life. Yep. These are, are slower and simpler, but, uh, but they're rich and full. Yep, family... Uh... Family matters are the most uh, fulfilling, that's for sure. Yeah, well, and I've been thinking a lot lately about that that classic quote, the hand that rocks the cradle is the hand that rules the world. And 
you know, how, how you raise your children impacts the next generation in terms of how they influence their world. So yes, yes. It's important to invest well at the beginning. Absolutely. Well, as I mentioned in your bio, you've, you've spoken and written a great deal about all kinds of life issues, particularly abortion. And as I say, it was, uh, it was just about a year ago when I talked about your most recent book, which was talking about the other end of life. Mm-hmm. And I interviewed you about um, your book, Start With What? Ten Principles for Thinking About Physician-Assisted Suicide. And that was very timely because uh, we're always fighting that up here in Massachusetts. Uh, but your most recent book went back to the beginning, back to the uh, other end of life. And the title of that book is uh, Conceived by Science, Thinking Carefully and Compassionately About Infertility and IVF. So tell me um, what led to you uh, deciding to write that particular book now. Mm. So, you know, for the last 20 years, I've been traveling and speaking on abortion and then broadened the last few years out to the other end of life. But I noticed in my audiences when I would do questions and answers, specifically when speaking on abortion, people disclosed they were uh, IVF conceived. Um, Other times people would ask me about the ethics of frozen embryos and what I think should be done with them and the whole issue of embryo adoption. And as I would answer those questions in the moment, it became clear to me and then the back and forth dialogue that there was a lack of formation on this particular issue. And there was a need to help people think clearly, wisely, and then to be able to articulate to others persuasively a pro-life perspective on, on IVF. And since I had kind of spent two decades honing the skills of question asking and storytelling on, you know, the other more common life issues, I thought, okay, maybe I could take those skills and my apologetics expertise and apply it to this issue and really give people a robust explanation for why we should be concerned from a moral perspective about IVF and so hence hence the book. Well you, you have a very good way of, of kind of weaving in stories along with sound bioethical principles and you do it very very uh, sensitively and, and compassionately and I know in my own practice patients would come to me having problems with infertility and some would just very blithely say, "Oh, I'm going to have uh, IVF." And these were, these were, you know, obviously they were good people, and many of them were Catholics. And I thought to myself, "Gee, why IVF?" And and there are a lot of moral um, problems with it, but at the same time, you you want to be sensitive about it. So you you um, approach it in a very compassionate way. How did you try to couch your explanation of IVF mm. in, by using these compassionate kind of stories? Yeah, I'm glad, I'm glad you brought that up. I think what really was clear to me from my work on the topic of abortion, where I realized so many people are emotionally involved with that, whether they've had abortions or their loved ones have, that we have to be able to be sensitive in communicating reason and logic 
on that topic, I thought, well, the same is true with IVF, mm-hmm. especially in, in, in perhaps, uh, in fact, with IVF, because with that topic, that's a very normal and ordered thing. Whereas with abortion, you're actually ending the life of someone who should be welcomed and loved. So there's, it's, it's really disordered if you look at the desire for abortion. But the desire for a child is ordered, it's normal, it's right. good, um, and it's the first command God gave us, be fruitful and multiply. So I thought, okay, the way to couch my message is to begin and end and throughout talk about the stories of people who have had that very good desire and how they have faced infertility and what that has looked like for them and how their stories have ended and some have ended as they desired with a child and others have ended differently, such as with adoption and others have ended uh, without children at all, but yet fulfillment. But the journey along the way had its challenges and its difficulties. And so I happen to have in my circle of friends a large group of people who have faced infertility. So I approached Mm -hmm. uh, couples I know and I said, hey, could I interview you? And all obliged. And so I thought, okay, if there's a reader out there who's feeling the the weight of the cross of infertility, uh, might have even pursued IVF, if I share the stories of people whose journeys have been similar, then they hopefully will sense, okay, this isn't about judging a person then it's about stepping into the question of, even in my pain, what is the most ethical thing to do? And what's mm-hmm. the least ethical thing mm-hmm. to do? And, and how do I wrestle with that? When I looked at your manuscript initially, which you graciously let me uh, read, the title was Life in Glass. And uh, I wondered why you switched from that title, Life in Glass, to Conceived by Science. Was there a particular reason why you um, made that shift? Yeah. You know, honestly, that was just a practical matter. I thought, well, you know, the nature of IVF is that a human being begins not beneath the mother's heart in in the body of another human, but in a a glass dish, it almost seems, you know, cold, sterilized in a lab. So I thought, okay, that that captures it. But it was more practically as as I was getting close to publishing, I thought I need to make sure there's no other title out there that could, in a sense, compete with this title or lead to confusion. And then I I found there was a, a group in another part of the world that actually educated on IVF, but it looked like it wasn't from my perspective, and they used that phrase, and I thought, okay, I don't want any confusion. I want people, if they're going to hear of my book title, make sure they get my message and not someone else's that I can't control. So then I I put on the thinking cap and got a few people to give me their opinion, so it was really just a practical matter. Well, it was a good turn of a phrase because it it speaks to the the whole idea of coldness and isolation, And, and I like, in the early part of your book, you talked about the pain and the loneliness and the isolation of uh, millions of men in China who have no partners. Mm. And I wonder if you could talk about that and how you related it to um, IVF. Sure. Well, one of the points I wanted to address is that a common ethical principle is that the ends don't justify the means. Mm -hmm. And by that we mean if you look at an end result, which is good, Um, that alone isn't grounds to celebrate the act, even if the end result is good, if it's possible the means itself was unethical. And so I thought the best way to impart that principle is through an analogy. Mm-hmm. And I had remembered several years ago watching a documentary about men in China who longed for wives and many of them couldn't find 
spouses. And this is because there's been decades of a one-child policy in a culture that has preferred male children to female children. And so that has meant for, I think, about 30 years or so that baby girls, whether in the womb or newly born as infants, have been killed, whether by abortion or infanticide, in very large numbers, so that now some estimates say there's 34 million more Mm. men than women in China. And that means there's millions upon millions of men who, statistically speaking, uh, won't find that that uh, wife. And so uh, the point I I make in bringing that up is to say, look, the desire these men have for a wife is good. And if someone gets married, the instinctive response is, oh, that's something to be celebrated. But what if I told you that someone who had a desire for marriage and got married chose a very particular means of achieving that desire for marriage, and the means they chose was human trafficking. And Mm -hmm. one of the points I make in my book is this is the reality that there are men who either themselves kidnap women and force them into marriages, or they hire people, they hire human traffickers that essentially bring them women who are forced into such marriages. And I bring that up in order to tap into the instinctive reaction we all have, which is that's not correct. Even though the desire for a wife is good, Mm -hmm. the means of of human trafficking and enslavement is not ethical. And if we can all agree on that, then we can all agree on the principle. And then I bridge it to the topic of infertility. And I say, look, in the same way as the desire for a spouse is good, the desire for a child Mm -hmm. is good. And if I were to just say, oh, look, so-and-so had a baby, oh, look, so-and-so got married, people might instinctively say, congratulations. But if I tell you the desire for a child and the fulfillment of a child had in between the means of kidnapping, Mm -hmm. everyone would say, oh, whoa, hold on a second, that's not ethical. And so I bring that up to say, could the means of in vitro fertilization, like the means of kidnapping, while different in one sense, be similar in another in that it's unethical. And if it's unethical, then the good desire and the result of a child doesn't make the unethical means correct. Right. So I guess it gets it all gets back to the whole idea of treating human beings like objects. You, you mentioned the uh, commoditization of uh, mm-hmm. IVF. Yes, and that's something that became very clear to me as I I did research on the topic is if you look at objects, they are commodities. They're things that are bought and sold, things that when they are no good, they get thrown out or replaced. Uh, If you buy something in a store and it's broken, uh, you expect to be able to return it and get your money back Mm -hmm. or get another item. And what I found is that that mentality for how we treat objects is often running rampant in the mentality of the IVF industry, where people are buying and selling body parts, uh, you know, the eggs and the sperm, they're buying and selling bodies, you know, maybe babies will be purchased, little embryos. Um, There's the renting of women's uteruses, Mm -hmm. surrogacy, even just, gosh, it was this week, I believe, Dave Rubin, you know, on one hand, he could be labeled as a a right-wing conservative, having once been a left-wing atheist, Mm. but he's not fully conservative because he's a a practicing homosexual and he and his male partner just announced that they have two babies coming, one Mm -hmm. in August and one in October, I Mm. believe. And well, they're, they're, two homosexual men. So that means they had to have had a surrogate because yeah. there's no female in, in their relationship. And so we don't know, at least from what I've read, I don't know the circumstances of whether this is a surrogate who freely chose to gestate uh, their children um, uh, with without compensation or whether there is financial compensation. But regardless, 
throughout the IVF world, it is very common for there to be conversation. I mean, surrogates, one, one clinic I read about in California, a surrogate can get fifty or $60,000 yeah. yeah. just to gestate someone else's child. And mm-hmm. so there very much is this attitude of the buying and selling of the human yeah. person. And the problem with that is human persons aren't objects. Right. So we shouldn't be treated the way objects are treated. Right. It puts a price tag on life. And speaking of this whole objectification and and how it so can be so dehumanizing, can you take some time talking about the the whole step-by-step process of IVF and why it's so dehumanizing each step of the way? Sure, great question. You know, if we, if we start at the very beginning, one of the, the main points I make in my book is that God made sex necessary for us to be fruitful and multiply, mm-hmm. for us to have children. And IVF makes sex very unnecessary, whereas sex unites in a communion of persons that is often used. Marriage, you know, throughout the scriptures is used as an analogy to the Trinity and the love of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit yes. bringing together. Sex does that. It's a bringing together of a husband and wife, a communion of persons. Then when the child comes into existence, you have another communion of persons, that of the mother and child, because the child is beneath the mother's heart. Whereas with IVF, you have division of persons. You have mm-hmm. total separation. Typically, the the semen is obtained through an act of masturbation. So Mm -hmm. then you have uh, a man separated from his wife as his seed is being brought forth. Then you have the wife who then goes to the fertility clinic to have her eggs removed from her body as opposed to remaining in her body to receive the seed. Her husband might go with her to the clinic. He might hold her hand, but it's not necessary for the eggs to be retrieved. So Mm -hmm. just the very nature of the act is, once again, separation, isolation. Then, you know, the husband and wife will leave, and they'll get a report from the lab who involves technicians putting together the sperm and the egg in a Petri dish in the lab and reporting to the husband and wife if any of the embryos uh, have come into existence. So then the child is also divided from the parents, separated Mm -hmm. from the parents. And so one is uniting sexual intimacy. The other one is dividing IVF. Then if you look at the baby now starting his or her life in the lab, your lab typically is going to evaluate that child and give it a grade. You know, we think there's a, this is an A embryo or is it a C minus embryo based on factors like, do they sense based on, you know, a number of factors they look at, whether the child will likely implant and grow till birth and so forth. But we shouldn't grade, we don't grade our five-year-olds. Or you're, 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 a, you're a, a, a B-plus child as right. opposed to your friend who's an A-plus child. Like, we don't do that, and yet right. the IVF industry is doing that with embryos. Then if embryos are seen to have some type of genetic anomaly, then they won't even be frozen or implanted, they will be experimented on in a scientific research, for scientific research, or uh, just killed right away. If they are implanted because a genetic anomaly is not discovered, but once the pregnancy uh, occurs, the child has, you know, the mom has genetic testing, and Mm -hmm. then they discover maybe there's Down syndrome. There have been cases where couples who wanted a baby chose IVF and found out the child has Down syndrome, then opt for abortion. And so then you have this separation again, this this division, and of course, this direct destruction. So all along the way, we see a mentality that is objectifying the human person, treating the individual as an object, and separating and dividing relationships rather than a coming together and a receiving of the human person in an act of love, as opposed to a forcing and a manufacturing someone into existence. 
This concludes part one of my interview with Stephanie Gray Connors. Tune in next time when we will discuss more about the agony of infertility and the darkness of IVF. And until next time, remember, we should always treat life with care and respect. And at the very least, we should first do no harm. First do no harm with Dr. Mark Rollo is produced at WQPH 89.3 FM, Shirley Richburg. We are very happy to share it with other networks. Thank you for tuning in to First Do No Harm. Dr. Rollo welcomes your questions and comments. You may contact him at markrollo978 at gmail.com. That's M-A-R-K-R-O-L-L-O 978 at gmail.com. Thank you, and until next week, remember, first, do no harm.